back to the Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo Season 13 final episode. I am your host, Anthony. 13 seasons in the books. I really have to thank all of you who have listened this long and who've emailed me and written reviews. Uh, my sincere gratitude. This week, we take a break from our close chapter reads. And usually when I take a break from the minutia of this series... I like to do a big picture, canvas stretching conversation about something that relates to Game of Thrones, but isn't necessarily about Game of Thrones. And I had an idea to talk about Machiavelli with Philip Haberkern from Boston University, who teaches a class on Game of Thrones, but requires his students to read Machiavelli's The Prince. And I had never read The Prince from start to finish before. So I reached out to Phil and he said, yeah, he'd be happy to do it. So I popped on the audiobook for The Prince. took me about four and a half hours. But I've now read The Prince by Machiavelli and ready to talk about it with Phil. This is just another example of why I enjoy doing this podcast so much. Machiavelli's The Prince is a really important bit of literature that I probably would have never taken the time to read otherwise. Before we get to Phil, I ought to mention that I'm going to be taking a break from Electric Boogaloo for just a few weeks. Just a little hiatus between seasons 13 and 14, probably three or four weeks, and we'll pick up again with Clash of Kings. If you miss me in the meantime, you can check out my rewatch of Apple's sci-fi thriller series, Severance. It's an excellent show. Steve and I are doing a rewatch of that show in preparation for season two. So to find that, do a search for The Lorehounds Severance. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Philip Haberkern. Your assignments were really interesting to me, by the way. Yeah. it's Well, it's just this whole idea of, like, we have this new big general education curriculum, and it stimulated me to rethink the way I do some stuff. And so because there was a creativity uh-huh. element, I thought it'd be really fun to, to, to not just have some creative assignments, but then to actually have students talk about sort of yeah, the, the one assignment that I thought was really interested, it was like, uh, it was something like, how would you craft the message of Joffrey's mm-hmm. ascent to the throne? Oh yeah. Um, that, that's sort of like in this you know, key to this book, right? Cause there's all kinds yeah. of messaging <laughs> around Joffrey. Um <laughs> Yes. And I, I mean, the whole question, and it's actually, it's amazing with um, Renly and Stannis too, about like what qualifies somebody yeah. to be, I think you just had, who were, you had the great two-part conversation um, with the three women that posted Yeah, recently. Gabby and um, Carol and Valerie. Uh, Val. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like, that whole conversation about like is primogeniture smart and the answer is usually no and you know but partable inheritance has its own issues all of those questions are just so much fun to play with and you know i get to do the bait and switch with my students where we start with a novel and then i make them read really hard like medieval political theory and they do it i love it i love it i love it um, no, I, I those are really creative assignments, and uh, and I envy your students. I hope that they, I hope that they enjoy it. So last year was the first time I taught it, and 
it was really fun because I would guess I had like 70% super fans and then like 30% students who had no investment in the source material yeah. at all. And so the dynamic of like, you know, the converted trying to bring in new disciples and, you know, people trying to figure out why the person next to them cares so deeply about like incredibly arcane matters, <laughs> like the credit economy and the role of the iron bank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic it, it was they were an incredible group so I'm, I'm worried i'm setting myself up for disappointment because they just they were a smart group that had really good chemistry with each other so a lot of times i could just sort of ask one question and stay out of the mm -hmm. way um so fingers crossed yeah i best wishes on a on a on a good semester i, I do how many people you Thanks. have enrolled in that class 50 50 really wow yeah, and I, and that's capped. I think it would have gone oh, higher. That's gracious. But a, a huge piece of it is it's again in this general education curriculum the combination of what do I have ethics, ethics and creativity. Like if you're a, a chemistry major and you need to knock out both of those things, it it's a very desirable uh, set it. of requirements. So besides the subject matter, there are some institutionally yeah, pragmatic reasons good. that lots of students want smart, to take it. Smart guy. Smart guy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. 
So, Phil, I got this idea by looking at your syllabus uh, that you do for your class in which you assign Game of Thrones, and I noticed that one of the texts that you assigned for that class is Machiavelli's The Prince. Yes. And what what do you hope your students learn by reading Machiavelli's The Prince? That's an interesting one because, yes, we read The Prince because I think there is a sort of default identification as politics in Game of Thrones as Machiavellian. However, yeah, we that was, yeah, that's where that I was term. hoping to go with this for sure. Yes, but uh, we read him alongside a lot of other basically like advice literature from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance that is more idealistic in its formulation of how good, good courtiers and good education and good advice can create good princes. And so when you put Machiavelli alongside that other literature, you're suddenly getting like a really interesting dialogue about what kind of advice does a ruler need? Um, And is it that sort of cold-eyed pragmatism that we associate with Machiavelli? Is it the more idealized, sort of Christian-influenced advice of someone like uh, Baldessare Castiglione? Um, Is it the sort of chivalric idealism of sort of early literature? And so all of this sort of coexists. And I, I want the students to get a feel for the sort of spectrum of these mirrors for princes. And then we apply what we take from these texts to certain characters. So for instance, an assignment would be, if you're on Joffrey's small council and he's just ascended to the throne, what book are you gonna give him and why? Um, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> do you want him reading Machiavelli or do no. you want him reading uh, you know, Erasmus's Education of a Christian Prince? Very different advice. So that's what we're doing is just to think about this as a whole genre of very seemingly pragmatic advice for how do we negotiate the transition of power between one person and the other and try to guide the person who's stepping in to lead. So most classes that use Game of Thrones are using Game of Thrones sort of as a hook to teach something else about the world, right? Yes. Uh, And particularly you're teaching about, I'm I'm thinking something early modern or medieval with Mm -hmm. your class, right? Absolutely. Um, And so I think for me, uh, just as speaking as someone who is not a specialist in that period, I've got a particular view of Machiavelli that kind of, it was exploded in the last week when I actually sat down and read Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of get the idea that, you know, Game of Thrones almost lionizes a Machiavelli uh, real politic. Yes. And yet I wonder how well Machiavelli actually maps on to our favorite characters in Game of Thrones. Uh, some So like, for instance, I can totally get it. Like, why would you recommend something like this to Joffrey? You know, that that's an interesting question. But I don't know if I find many characters in Game of Thrones that could be accused of taking Machiavelli's advice uh, in large. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I so I think the question is, how much are we talking about, like, the whole 
corpus of Machiavelli versus the oh, just the prince. You know, I've just I've <laughs> I just read the prince. So it's totally good. You know, and a mistake I, and on my part to to equate his entire corpus with just the the well known of the prince, right? No, no, it's, it's because the, again, like this is the vast majority. The vast majority of people who are exposed to Machiavelli, this is their entry point. It's usually right. the closing point. Um, and while I don't think the prince is really representative of a lot of Machiavelli's larger sort of political beliefs or the the life he lived, we can sort of put that aside for a second because the prince really is like, this is what he is known for. This was the book that, you know, created modern politics and real politic and divorced, you know, political action from religious considerations. Like it, it's credited with all of these enormous sort of this huge historical influence, which is which is true. I mean, it is a deeply influential book, especially over the sort of long durée. But I think you're absolutely right that there are very few people in Game of Thrones who you could sort of see applying the underlying rationality of the prince, you know, it, in a consistent way. I think there's a lot of like individual snippets or individual um, moments or pieces of advice within the prince that we see reflected in Game of Thrones and maybe even certain people who have analogs um, in Game of Thrones. But overall, I'm with you. There's no one in the text with maybe the possibility of someone like Peter Baelish, who I think is truly Machiavellian. That's interesting. Okay. So let's talk about that term Machiavellian. I think when people think of that term, they they tend to think someone who's willing to do whatever it takes to accumulate and keep power. Yes. Um, and they, they'll, you know, backstabbing is uh, advantageous um, if it, if it allows you to achieve that end. Uh, I mean, that's generally the legacy, although I kind of feel like it's a bit reductive at this point. Super reductive. I agree with with you 100%. I mean, like the the famous line is the ends justify the means. And that is somewhat true. But as you say, like reading Machiavelli, he is deeply, deeply attuned to the consequences of actions and the appearance of Mm -hmm. injustice or cruelty. And so every piece of advice he gives that says, well, you can do this is followed by three examples of why you have to be exceptionally careful when doing that (laughs) or else, you know, the nobles or the mob will be at your doorstep. And so, yes, he is much more calculated than sort of this do whatever you want to accumulate power. But I think we have that sort of, as you say, that sort of reductive vision of his politics in most of our popular culture. So as fans of Game of Thrones, and I've met a lot of fans of Game of Thrones, there's like two kinds. There's people that fall in love with characters because they want to root for those characters and sort of Mm -hmm. a a soul-forward approach. And then there are people that just enjoy smart characters who win (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know sort of like i i just i just want to see the i want to see a shark in the wild do shark in the wild kind of things um and so i wonder if 
do, do you find that there's a divide with Machiavelli too? Like, do your students enjoy Machiavelli? Do they do they admire him? Do they kind of think he's um, he's amoral? What 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 is the general response you're getting? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so one thing is that I think you know everything that Machiavelli or a lot of what he says in The Prince has become so ingrained in both our pop culture sense of politics and the actual practice of politics that students do not find it shocking. I think a lot of Uh what he says seems like common sense. Uh So there's that. The second piece of this though, and if if you don't mind, we'll indulge in a little uh, historical context is when I teach Machiavelli, it's really important to talk about the prince, like in the, in the way it was produced, which you know, Machiavelli has lived in Florence for his whole life. In 1494, the Florentines sort of kick out the Medici, who've been the dominant family in the city, and they recreate a Florentine Republic from 1494 to 1512. And Machiavelli works for the Republic. He is a diplomat. He is a bureaucrat. He's actually in charge of creating a citizen militia. He is deeply invested in the Republic. Mm. And then the Medici come back in 1512, they take down the Republic, and uh, Machiavelli is tortured for three weeks as a collaborator in this anti-Medici regime. And he's eventually released, but he's forced to sort of retire to the country, which slowly kind of drives him a little nuts. He wants to be in the action. He wants to be back in the thick of things. And so when he writes The Prince, he dedicates it to the leader of the Medici in Florence, the family (laughs) that has had him tortured, it is a job application. So this is a deeply instrumental text. And I think based on his, you know, again, his life of his life and his other writings, I I don't think he's, he believes on a lot of the things he's saying on a sort of deep metaphysical level, but he's trying to show the utility of his advice to a potential employer. He's like, I know that you're looking for a fox. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to see that I'm as foxy as they get. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And so that piece of it, when students approach the text from that angle, that this is not a sort of list of eternal truisms of politics, huh. but it's a set of advice that's highly tailored to the recipient in the moment. I think then they're like, oh, I get this. I see how these specific lessons are meant to apply to certain people are meant to say, Mm. okay, Medici, here's how you come back after a generation out of power and reassert yourselves over a population that has, you know, forgotten what you were and grown used to certain Republican Mm -hmm. freedoms and is surrounded by enemies on all sides. Like it's a really fraught moment. And so what I think my students really like about this is how finely attuned Machiavelli is to the circumstances. And that's why I think it's really fun because normally I do not want my students to try to match Game of Thrones to to clear historical analogs because yeah, right. that's how it works. But in this case, I kind of do enjoy it because you know they're, they can really think clearly about how certain circumstances in the books uh, or in the show match up with these historical parallels and and it's it's a really interesting kind of mix and match game so that's interesting so instead of thinking like 
advice for Joffrey or whatever. This is sort of like Littlefinger being demoted by Tywin or sent, sent into exile by Tywin. Yes. And him sort of writing a Java application. Like I, uh, I want to uh, be back in the middle, in the mix of things. And here's how I can be of use. So the way you just attach that to specific characters in a specific circumstance is exactly like what I'm going for. Right. Mm -hmm. Because when you take that in, you can see, you know, Baelish's advice would be different, right? Little fingers would be more about money and less about mercenaries, but you can imagine him, you know, hunched over a desk in the lower floors of the Erie trying to get back to King's Landing, you know, and, and writing this out with Tywin, you know, looking on disapprovingly. So, so I really like that specific image you brought in and, you know, that's the sort of identification I want with students to apply these historical lessons to the sort of political context of Game of Thrones. That's that's sort of the conceit of the class. It's interesting to me because when I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of uh, Josephus, who's writing in a much earlier period. Oh, yes. Um, and... Josephus has this view, you know, he, he he has several works attributed to him, and one of the works is basically talking about contemporary politics. Um, and one of the things that Josephus does is that he has this view of nobility as almost virtuous and uh, default positions as innocent, mm-hmm. high-minded folk. And of course, you know, he's writing specifically for an an upper crust Roman audience, I think. So he's trying to like butter them up. Mm-hmm. But the counterexample to that is that you can't trust the the rabble of society, the the lower classes. The the lower classes can never get political power because they will you know they are amoral. They're, they, you know, they're like a step up from beasts. Uh, it's going to be pearls before swine if the hoi polloi ever get the power. Mm-hmm. Monkey Valley kind of feels like it's almost like he's saying, "Look, let's talk real here. There's no major difference between the morality of leaders and the morality of the common folk. Mm-hmm. We're all vying for power." And uh, and let's not pretend that we're some sort of higher moral species. So the way that he talks to fellow upper crust folk really stands out to me as as a, a remarkable thing. Like there's no it's all it feels like there's almost no veneer on it. It's like he's sort of pulling back the curtain to reveal what, you know, upper crust people know about other upper crust people. Yes. And I would actually, maybe I would go further, I think, even to say that he is deeply classist in the sense that he sees the nobility or the rich, because he very much associates power and money as inherently rapacious. It is their nature to take and to want and to covet. And then he says, the people, on the other hand, they simply want not to be oppressed. <laughs> they they have a really simple goal, which is like so you know, he's re- he's reversed it from Josephus, basically a hundred percent. And so, actually, in another text he writes, he's asked to sort of write a a, a treatise on reforming um, 
the political constitution of Florence, he actually suggests that in the main legislative body, they should recreate the tribunes from Republican Rome, whose whole job is to represent the interests of the poor. Because he says, the issue here is just it's straight up money. And the people who have it want more, and they will take, and they will take, and they will take. And if we don't have institutional controls to protect the poor, their oppression will continue forever. And so, you know, Machiavelli then says, you know, the wise prince can work with the people, meet their needs, protect them from the imposition of the rich, and in doing so, sort of secure their support against the nobility. Because he sees, mm-hmm. I guess, I guess we call it triangle politics between the prince, the nobility, and the people. And so I think he strongly advocates or he sees the nobility of the rich as a destabilizing, sort of inherently negative force in society. Um, mm. Even more than we're the same, he's like, actually, we're way worse. <laughs> right. Okay. Do you feel like he's more representative of medieval politics or modern politics? It's a really interesting question. Um, there is more pro-people, anti-noble sentiment in medieval writing than we generally give it credit for. Hmm. But I don't think we see a really strong sort of embrace of what we might see as kind of like Republican thought, like empowering people from the lower classes in certain ways. That really is more of a 14th, 15th century thing. It's starting in this time. And he's imbibed some of that. It's happening in the church. It's happened in the communes. It's happening in guild representation in Florence. It's happening in in Venice to some extent. Um, So he's kind of aware of and consume that. And then he synthesizes it in a way that I think is looking forward. Um, So I I would minimize the break a little bit. I think it's probably been overstated, but I would still put him more in the camp of the modern, if that that makes sense. Yeah, sure. I think the one thing that, the one thing that sort of struck me was all of the examples that he gives are of, uh, you know, this particular prince took this particular city, and then mm-hmm. this this city uh, t- uh, made an alliance with that head of state of that city, and it's all very much kind of a polis centric approach. Yes, and uh, meaning sort of everything is sort of centered around the a center of gravity that on a, of a particular city. And then there are like orbiting regions around that particular city. And so you Mm -hmm. don't really get some of the considerations of nation states that you would get in a later period. That's true. That's definitely true. And again, it's so contextual for him because, you know, the Italian peninsula in through most of the 15th century is sort of primarily divided politically between five major players. Uh, Venice, Milan, Florence, the Papal States, and then in the South, uh, Sicily and Naples. And so he lived in a world that is like, as you said, sort of polis driven. It looks more like ancient Greece than it does modern Italy. And that gets radically destabilized by the invasion of the peninsula in 1494, uh, 14, oh shoot, I'm failing as a history professor, um, in the 1490s, I'll be, I'll be cheap, um, <laughs> Okay. By King Charles VIII of France, it is 1494. I'm right. Um, and so for him, you know, kings writ large can be very dangerous 
whereas he sees you know the natural state of affairs being the sort of balance of power between roughly equal smaller players got it that that actually makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. so it's interesting because again a lot of his politics is we aren't strong enough to conquer everybody else but we need to make sure that no one else is strong enough to conquer us it's very kind of defensive reactive in that way right right so uh when i was reading through i couldn't help but think of danny mostly i was thinking of her her problems in marine more than anything else do you Students also make that connection. Okay. So disclosure, sadly, we only do the first book in my class. All right. Which drives all of my students who are familiar with the series crazy because they really want to talk about exactly what you're Uh bringing, which is the (laughs) arc of Daenerys. Um, But we just, there's a limit kind of on how much we can do. Um, But no, I mean, like of all of the characters in the book, much more so than any of the claimants to the Iron Throne, in the beginning books, Daenerys is the one who best exhibits the sort of tensions, the ambiguities, like the struggles of a Machiavellian prince figure, without doubt. The thing that most struck me was his advice about bringing on a mercenary army. Yes. Um, So could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, so again, he, for a time, was charged with bring creating a a citizen militia for the city of Florence because he had a deep distrust of mercenaries. And so in the late 15th century, there are actually a number of sort of Italian city-states that are run by these uh, condottieri, these mercenary leaders, experts in raising military forces to take or defend cities. And he sees them as inherently untrustworthy because they have no love of the city. They have no love of the patria. They have no loyalty. How can you trust them? And, you know, clearly that the most proximate um, example for why we should believe Machiavelli on this is the second sons, right? Um, right. Who are supposed to defend one city, but because of infighting among their leadership uh, and a promise of gold kind of switch sides very quickly. So, it for for Machiavelli, it's rooted in historical experience and seeing the world around him, which is dominated by mercenary armies, and seeing how quickly um, their allegiances might shift. But you know, the unsullied are such an interesting case, and because of the way Daenerys first acquires them, then frees them, but in doing so, binds them to her they become almost something else, I I would say. You can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think he, Machiavelli says something like, there's three kinds of armies. Yes. There are, there's an army that are from your own kin, uh, your Mm -hmm. own people. That's the ideal army. And then there's the army that sort of, uh, is it are, are attached to you because you've made an alliance with someone else, but really that army is, uh, loyal to someone who you've made an alliance to. Um, That that would be sort of the the lesser of the two options. The one you never want to find yourself in is if you're paying mercenaries. Absolutely. That's the third army, and uh, those people, uh, you, you're going to have a hard time inspiring loyalty because they are only loyal to the money, right? Absolutely. Whereas sort of the unsullied are almost a fourth option here. I'm, honestly, I'll be honest. The Unsullied do feel to me almost ahistorical, 
Like, I'm trying to think of a situation where a slave army would, you know, sort of have a religious experience and fall in love with a, a teenage girl and they're, they're willing to die for her. That all sounds, that all feels more of fantasy lit to me. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I, don't so. think there's, I don't think there's a good parallel for that. So, yeah, so, but the second sense is a perfect, you know, you never want to do that. And this is exactly what Jorah is warring against as yes. Danny finds herself in Karth. Uh, Jorah saying, look, you can't just retake the throne with the right amount of money. You're going to have to inspire loyalty. You're going to have to have allies. You do not want to find yourself in a place where you are bringing a for, foreign army onto Westrosi soil. Exactly. That's not going to work. And, uh, and you know, uh, we find that this problem sort of plays out in the show, right? And this is sort of this is sort of like perfect parade case of Machiavelli's advice not being followed. And yes. then, of course, Cersei does kind of the same thing, right? <laughs> Yes, she does with what the Golding Company, I guess. You're right. Yeah. You know, because it's you're in you, when you were talking about the sort of types of armies, right? You take that first ideal type of army. Yeah. That is the North under Rob Stark. Right. Yeah, yeah. There is this fierce devotion of hundreds or thousands of years of tradition of following this family. Deep trust that they have the welfare of their men and their land. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, at the center of their action, like you know, the the Stark host is that sort of ideal type. Now, once you get in bed with the phrase, you're introducing <laughs> some of the second type. Right, uh, yeah. You know how that works out. So there's a danger in that. And then I agree that with the second sons or the golden company, we have the third type. In the same way, the slave soldiers who become completely devoted to Danny. Yeah, that's just, that is a, a wonderful piece of fantasy. And slave soldier armies, are a part of history, but they tend to actually just install themselves in power over time. Um, That's interesting. Like the the Mamluks in Egypt um, are probably like the best example of that, where you have these soldiers who are brought in and trained as slaves to the Sultan, and eventually they sort of move into power themselves, recognizing that they are the power. So maybe over time, that's what would have happened. We'll never know. But no, I don't think there are any specific historical reference for that. I like the idea that if someone like Tywin or someone like Danny or someone like Tyrion had Machiavelli on the payroll and just getting, you know, getting great advice from that person that they would have like a superpower. You know, they've got mm-hmm. sort of this uh, almost like a super genius uh, you know, Lex Luthor type on their side who can just feed them <laughs> the best information in every situation. But a lot of the reasons why I like Martin's world is that sometimes the smartest play isn't the winning play. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, I really did everything right. And guess what? Something, you know, an assassination happened and, and right. that was it. You know, the other person didn't play, didn't play by the rules and, and now you're dead. Uh, or everything in the North is sort of, you know, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell and everything's ideal in the North. And then just a couple little, throw a little chaos wrench into the mix 
and the whole thing goes sour. You know, Rob Stark falls in love with someone he's not supposed to fall in love with, and the whole thing crumbles. And so even though I kind of like the idea that the smartest strategic move is the winning move, it's not the most interesting way to tell a story. Um, right. And I guess a roundabout way for me to ask this question, do you think that Machiavelli is wise? I do. And I, so ooh, there's so much to unpack in what you just asked. It's, it's such a good question. Because Machiavelli himself, like, if there is a hero in The Prince, it is Cesare Borgia, um, son of Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander VI, initially sort of meant to be a churchman, but he's actually kind of a a brilliant military figure. He's charismatic. He is a warrior. Um, And then his father sort of sets him up to create a sort of mini kingdom for himself in Central Italy. And... Machiavelli talks about all of the brilliant strategies that father and son pursued. Um, we also might mention that these two have uh, Cesare had a sister, a notorious, uh, insa- sexually insatiable, beautiful sister named Lucrezia. Um, and they do everything right. And then at the crucial moment where Cesare is consolidating his power, he gets sick and his father dies and it's over in a, in a heartbeat. And so Machiavelli says, you know, repeatedly, like, you can make the best plans, you can do everything right, but sometimes fortune, fortuna, will just bite you in the ass. And there's, you can prepare against it, you can try to mitigate it, but it's not always possible. And, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. So he is well aware. And so his overall idea is, we're trying to mitigate risk, but I'm not guaranteeing that any of this will work. Mm-hmm. We have too many examples from history where it really, really doesn't. And so I think there's his wisdom is I've learned a lot of this the hard way. I mean, I was tortured for three weeks because I backed the wrong horse. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't try. It doesn't mean you you sit out the game of thrones you try to play the best you can, you you hope it works, but you also accept that it might not. Hmm. Sometimes I feel like, and and it could be that this is all part of the, the, you know, job application part of this, but sometimes I feel like, he, you know, he gets credit for not being too idealistic, but I kind of feel like sometimes he is like, Sometimes they'll say something like, you know, a, a prince must never make an alliance with a power who's greater than his own. Mm-hmm. Because then you're going to be, you know, beholden to that power that's greater than you. And I, all right, that sounds fine. But in, it feels like sometimes you're going to have to do that. And, yeah. you know, it's almost like they're, you know, he'll give this, you know, sort of high flutin, almost aspirational advice. Yes. Um, you know, it's it's important to look liberal, but be miserly. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, OK, all right. But will that always work out? I, I kind of feel like sometimes he'll give you these aspirational goals as a leader, mm-hmm. but it's hard to imagine a world where 
those that actually play out the way he thinks the way that he thinks that they're going to play out yeah that's an interesting point and you know part of that i think is sort of the genre of the mirror for princes which is it tends to be a mixture of like careful historical examples from the classical world, the Bible, and present-day politics with these sort of, as you said, highfalutin sort of maxims. And it'd be fascinating, you know, if you had your, if I had my students distill out a list of all of the sort of non-conditional rules of Machiavelli. I was thinking about that. I was like, someone it, must have come up with this list. I'm sure it exists. Um, and if we looked at it and it was 30 items, for instance, and you looked at them all, and you said, no one could do all of these without contradicting others. Right. I suspect, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I suspect that's the case. And I think, like, again, the reason why people talk about this text and think about this text is because it feels so delightfully, transgressively amoral or immoral compared to what we think of the Christian Middle Ages being. And it is the sort of break from that and, you know, telling people, no, it's not important that you are generous, just seem generous. I, I think we as modern readers, you know, glom onto that as sort of a liberating message in a perverse way, but it jibes with what we see around us. Right. So it's immense healing for that. Yeah. I want to talk about his view of Alexander for a minute. So okay. he does. I did a search for this because of another mm -hmm. project that I'm doing, and he uses the word effeminate a few times. And he okay. always associates the word effeminate with cowardly. Yes. Like, to be effeminate is to be is to have a vice of some kind. Absolutely. Um, all right. So he's using all these examples from the ancient world. He's using all these examples from history and uh, recent history and the Bible and all this business. And then he's got Alexander, who... I mean, you can't paint it any other way. The guy is just a winner. He's just, he, he is just a winner through and through. But he says that his fatal flaw is that he is effeminate. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of feel like, so I don't understand how he can continue to hold that view without contradicting himself. Oh, that's so you're, you're, you are very successfully pulling me into something that I know less about, um, which is good. And that idea of non-contradiction, I don't know, because it's like, you cannot deny the success of Alexander on the battlefield. And he ties a lot of that to the structure, or Machiavelli ties that to the structure of the Persian empire, right? And the way that there's a sort of subservience baked into the ruling class that once the emperor is gone, once Darius is defeated, there's a sort of natural inclination towards the new ruler uh -huh. without a desire to sort of rise up. So there's, there's something about this that's structural and that subservience would probably be gender coded uh, as effeminate. And so there's that. But Machiavelli is also a good enough historian to know, I think, about Alexander. So, so perhaps it's that inability to secure things for the long term through cold, rational thinking to sort of barricade yourself against fortune so that when he has the early death, mm. there's not a plan in place. Um, because mm. you know, one of the things that's hard, one of the things that's very alienating about Machiavelli is, and you're tapping into this, is how deeply gendered 
his view of success is. And so he very often positions against each other, Virtu and Fortuna. And uh, Virtu, V-I-R-T-U, is typically translated into English as virtue, but that sort of misses, I think, the flavor of that word, which in, hmm. in Italian in the 15th, 16th century, virtu is like masculine agency. Oh. It is the power in oneself to actualize your will. Oh, this um, is like the, the Nietzschean virtue. <laughs> absolutely. And it is gendered male. It is absolutely masculine. Uh-huh. And it is positioned against Fortuna, the sort of fickle wheel of fortune ah. that brings the man high and then brings him low. And okay. I mean, in The Prince, it's somewhere, you know, Machiavelli even says, fortune is a woman and needs to be handled roughly, needs to be mastered. And you won't always succeed, but that's the attempt. And so I'm guessing that that's where this comes in. Alexander fails to um, sort of use his virtue, which is obvious in his military achievements, to create something that can sustain you know, the, the, the turning of the wheel of fortune, that's because this is, I'm get Yeah. So I think that's probably the why of it. And perhaps knowing something about like, you know, Greek, uh, sort of classical Greek sexual practices or Hellenistic culture. Like. That's so interesting because to me, I, you know, having sort of studied gender in the classical period, that term effeminate is usually not, it usually doesn't mean gay. It usually mm-hmm. means um, oh, okay. s- something along the lines of uh, in the male-male relationship, you're the receiver of the yes, of, mm-hmm. of the sexual action. And so it wouldn't necessarily be effeminate uh, to be the top. It'd be okay. more effeminate to be the bottom in this relationship. Oh. And uh, then I also I wanted to call out that there is a cat noise. I want to know the name of your cat. And I want... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry about that. That's not a cat noise. That is a squeaking stool. We have a dog. Oh, dog that's, is... that's so disappointing. I thought we were going to have some like window into Professor Habercurton's no, study. No. <laughs> no, we have, I have a, a, a brown, a big brown hound dog who is sleeping right now okay. in the room with me. His name is Coda right. for the uh, UNC point guard, Ed Coda, who played in the late 90s. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> So yeah, my, my no, I, I was I was surprised to see effeminate used of Alexander in that way, but yeah. I was sort of um, sort of importing more Greek terminology onto this, which clearly was a mistake on my part. No, I think it's I mean I think it's the right move to make. On I'm actually trying to figure out where that is in the text. Thank you for the magic. Okay, all right. So I want to talk about his use of uh, liberality. Yes. So he used the term liberal uh, a bit. And of course, that Mm -hmm. again, we have a a vocabulary issue. I think modern people associate liberal with, uh, I don't know, contemporary progressive values or something like that. Um, Am I right to think that when he says liberal, he just means generous? That is that is definitely what he means here is generous, Um, because I think although I mean, again, ironically, I think Machiavelli's, Machiavelli's politics are, are in fact liberal or even populist in a lot of ways. Like he wants to either protect or empower the sort of lower class people in Florence against 
a sort of oligarchy that he sees forming. Um, but in this context, no, it's definitely about generosity and the sort of being seen to be open-handed um, and sort of, you know, bringing people into you and taking care of the people who are loyal to you in a way that sort of uh, actualizes the reciprocity that's supposed to exist in this relationship. It's an interesting move on Machiavelli's part to say the better course is to be miserly, but you kind of have to pretend like you're liberal. Yes. And so I would say that, like, let's go back to the first book and think about Robert and the tournament for the hand of the king. And he's setting the prize money. Right. Uh And it is just it's going to beggar the kingdom. (laughs) But man, is he going to look awesome (laughs) Okay, as this open handed, generous king. So I let's take Robert as the Robert's going into the nightclub. He's making it rain. Robert definitely makes it rain. There's no doubt about that. Um, so if we think of him as the sort of negative extreme of liberty, and then we think of Joffrey as like the negative extreme of miserliness, the question is like, what's the proper balance? And so someone like Machiavelli, but a lot of his contemporaries are constantly hammering in this literature that the court can't cost too much. Like, keep your own expenses down, keep your household expenses down because that allows you to spend money in the right ways. And so in effect, you're kind of being miserly. You're controlling costs immediately around you, but your outward facing things are more generous. And then you'd say, oh, like Marjorie Tyrell bringing bread to everybody is like the right face of this. So it's it's always this fine balance in terms of like, what are our fiscal responsibilities? How do we spend this money? Because we can't look weak. We mm. can't look poor. But we can't actually become poor either. Right. Yeah. Through our generosity. Because it so it's a it's a really fine line. And it's one, you know, again, in this time period that we see a lot of rulers failing utterly to walk. You know, like this is a balancing act that a lot of rulers fail at. And it leads to things like, you know, English kings depending on parliament for tax money. Um, so so there's a, I think there's a really interesting kind of, um, yeah, like how do you spend money responsibly to gain maximum positive effect? Without... Yeah, I guess the question is, what are you really buying, right? Exactly. Are you buying uh, goodwill from the people and how much mm-hmm. will it cost to do it? <laughs> yes. Right. And what's yeah. what's the value? Uh, what 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 it would what is the value to doing that? You know, what's the least amount of money that you can actually spend to get the best value? And that? you know, we go we could go all the way back to you know the Roman Empire and bread and circus and see the way like what is necessity versus what yeah. is spectacle. Yeah. And how do we combine those things? And, and, you know, I, I think it's always an interesting question. Actually, with my students, we talk about the tourney of the hand of the king in the first book of, you know, why are you doing this? And it's about staging power. Uh, and it's about sort of, again, like representing yourself, representing kingliness in the person of Robert. Obviously, it ends poorly with the way the joust finishes, it's a high risk maneuver. But, but it's politically necessary because you're balancing out necessity with spectacle, 
which yeah. in pre-modern politics is really important. One of the things that Machiavelli says is that you've got to create a structure where y- your best people can get carrots. You don't want your people afraid to produce because they're going to be taxed too heavily if they do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's So you've got to have sort of regular prizes for people like that. So, yes. that, so that they think, oh, well, if I do something amazing, I'm going to get rewarded socially for these things. So, you know, something like attorney, which Renly does, you know, which Robert does. It's a way for th- these people who you're asking them to eventually die for you, maybe. Right. Yes. That they get a little carrot along the way. Right. <laughs> They get they get a little uh, a little moment where they get to be honored in front mm-hmm. of their peers, uh, and it doesn't cost you much to do that, right? No, and it's interesting. This is where we could see a break with Machiavelli because earlier sort of medieval texts on you know how to be a prince and how to run a court and how to establish yourself as legitimate focus much more on exactly what you're talking about, like these avenues or these arenas. For proving worth and excellence and receiving acclaim and sort of being satisfied with your place in the in the social hierarchy and you know therefore being loyal and we don't see that as much in machiavelli in that sort of ritualistic spectacular sense um it and and we're moving away from that a little bit and that's you know the transition from a sort of chivalric feudal knightly order to a more urban it, we might say like early bourgeois world. So, so I think it's part of a broader social shift, but it's an interesting one. This is where we might see a disjunction between the world he's describing and the world Martin is. Hmm. I found his discussion of war to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. And basically one of the things he says is that a good prince or a good head of state or whoever must always be thinking about war. Like, like ever you should be eating war. You should be sleeping war. You should be talking about war when you're on a picnic with your friends. You know, you should always be strategizing, even in times of peace, so that you can come up with every possible scenario for warfare. Because basically, that's who you are. That's your job as head of state. It's to be thinking about war and enacting war and winning wars. Um, that that just seems very unlikely to me. <laughs> um, again, I think this is so much to do with his time period, um, where you know, in the mid 15th century, uh, 1454, the major Italian powers sign a peace treaty, the Peace of Lodi, for 40 years. And you have throughout the middle of the 15th century, relative peace. There are border skirmishes. uh, There are some issues, but it's largely, it's a relatively peaceful period. And this is where we get the first flourishing Hmm. of the Italian Renaissance. King Charles invades in 1494. Uh, Venice starts trying to create an empire on terra firma, as well as in the Mediterranean and the Adriatic. Um, Milan has mobilized and is sort of, trying to grow. The King of Spain is interested uh, in Naples and Sicily. From 1494 on, Italy is a battleground. And so I think for Machiavelli, he's reflecting on the previous two decades where 
really all of the diplomacy and all the preparation is about which army is coming through, how do we negotiate, how do we defend ourselves, what are the right treaties to make, what are the right alliances, and this is his lived experience. And so I think that's a huge piece of it. But I, you know, I think you're also right that that is a that is a historical outlier that is not necessarily the normal way that things proceed. And so the idea of being constantly on war footing feels somewhat unrealistic to me as well, if for no other reason than it would bankrupt you. But, you know, it's I, I'm with you. I think it's but I think he's very much a product of his times in this. I was just wondering, like, if is there a character in Game of Thrones or in the world of Ice and Fire that Oof. that actually takes this advice? I can't think of anyone who is just all about war all the time. I mean, I guess you could say Jamie Lannister is sort of like throwing himself to the art into the art of swordplay, but I almost feel like for him is that's not war. It's not necessarily war. It's rehearsing war. You know, it's not like he's a great uh, field general or something. He, it's more like I want to be the best swordsman, mm-hmm. and that for him that could be tournaments or whatever. Um, right, and then the Greyjoys feel like they are constantly spoiling for a fight, but it's a different mindset that sort of raiding, reaving, as opposed to sort of conquest. That feels different to me. Tywin possibly feels like it's always on his mind. Like he seems like someone who on a Wednesday night is sitting around, you know, reading the art of war. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. It's like, we don't have a Tywin POV, right? No. Or or like, you know, he's skinning the deer and someone's reading it aloud to him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe if we had a Tywin POV, that's all he'd ever, you know, think about. Like, so, so, and I will actually say, because I think I missed I, at the very beginning of this conversation, like I do actually think in a lot of ways that Tywin is at secondhand, perhaps the most consistently Machiavellian character. Um, and I think he does some things very particularly, you know, in the course of the books that remind me of sections in The Prince. And I'll just bring up one because it's, it's a fast, I think it's such a, a kind of a good story is, you know, talking about Cesare Borgia and he conquers an area around Bologna and he's trying to sort of settle it down and extract taxes. And so he sends in a sort of minister to rule in his place. And this is just a terrible man, terrible man, very cruel, um, raises the anger of all the people in the territory. And so uh, Cesare shows up after a while and says to everybody, no, 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 I, I totally understand why you're so upset. And he bloodily executes the man, you know, in the city square and walks out of the square, you know, with a bloody knife in his hand. And it talks about the impact of the spectacle that he would tolerate no injustice done in his name. Now, remember, he set this person up. <laughs> right. He asked him to do this, right. <laughs> uses his cruelty, then punishes it as a way of gaining the favor of the people so he's playing both sides he's playing he's getting what he wants and at the end of the day he looks like the hero right he he's actually a villain he's he's betrayed two different people betrayed the commoners and betrayed a guy that's loyal to him but at the end of the day he does it in such a way where he looks heroic he looks heroic and you know you're I'm, i'm thinking about 
sending out the mountain that rides to terrorize, you know, a number of a number of nobles territories and then stepping in at the end to to create peace or something along those lines. Like there are just all of these ways that I think we see him hmm. Hmm. operating. Hmm. Um, I don't know. So he might, he might work. And I do think there's a vague echo of the Borgias, um, Cesare, his sister, Lucrezia and their father, uh, Rodrigo in the Lannister triad. Uh, but I, That's I, really I, interesting. I wouldn't take that too far. And, and Reddit has been on that for a long time. So I'm not claiming any originality in that thought. Um, <laughs> Okay. But I think it's there. That's that's fascinating. Uh one more question about Machiavelli. Sure. Um do you think that there's something to be said about the intention of the work and the mm-hmm. legacy of the work? Which like we were saying at the beginning could be picked up like by someone like Joffrey and taken as sort of you know, advice for all times in all places. Do you think that that discussion is worth having? The difference between authorial intent and the reception history. I think Machiavelli, if you looked at, like, again, all of his writings, and he wrote, you know, a long treatise on the art of war. He wrote a commentary on the historian Livy. He wrote certain defenses of republicanism, and he wrote The Prince. And I, I think he would be very disappointed to know that this is the work that he is singularly identified with, okay. because it's it's really a small slice mm-hmm. of his overall political thought. And you know, the question for me is kind of like, you know, as as you were saying in Game of Thrones, is anyone consistently Machiavellian? Does anyone really look like the prince that Machiavelli envisages? I don't think there are a lot of those people historically, because as you rightly noticed, there is some contradictions here. It's there are these big, bold, broad brush statements, yeah. and then there are these really specific pieces of advice. So I think, you know, again, we're attracted by what this work isn't, which is painting power, uh, you know, with or looking at power with rose-colored glasses. But I I don't know how many people would have sat down. Yeah, with Machiavelli under their pillow at night, uh, awoken and tried to rule in this manner. I don't see it. So I I don't know. The intent is really interesting because, again, this highly specific piece of writing that is turned into. And and we should remember, he never published it in his lifetime. Oh, I didn't know that. No, he circulated it among friends because he knew it was highly controversial. He sent it to the Medici. He sent it to other humanists. It was published five years after his death it became really really popular and then it was put on the index of prohibited books after the council of Trent because it was thought of as a very dangerous work so so that's the other piece of this is you know he either didn't intend or was afraid of this getting a broad readership hmm. Hmm. so we so oof, that 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 makes the authorial tent even a little more interesting yeah it really does it really does. I mean, I guess I was thinking like sometimes I, I go to the question like big picture is the world a better place for this having been written? <laughs> you know, if Machiavelli knew the way that this would be used, you know, 500 years later, would he have written it? Would he have written it? Obviously very hard to say. I mean, I, again, I think he would have because he was looking for something specific from this text. 
right? This was this was the because he was he would have done it anyway because he was Machiavellian. Is that what you're saying? No, no. I, this was the means to an end, and it wasn't meant <laughs> right. necessarily for the public eye. Like I, I was just recently uh, rewatching Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. and if you look at the commentary from Scorsese and DiCaprio. It's very clear that this is this is not someone who's heroic. We're not trying to celebrate this particular kind of personality. No. And I think that any reasonable person who watches the movie will come to that conclusion. But that does not mean that there are not a million people who just celebrate the Wolf of Wall Street. Correct. Uh, so then the question is, does it even matter? Does 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 the authorial intent even matter? Um, I, I mean, you know, the reason that I conceived my class and the reason you know that it seems to draw students is there is the hook of this story and why the students are initially attracted to the story. Like I, I can't say, or what are their favorite pieces of it, and what is the attraction that it exercises on them? It's obviously it's really really varied. But what you can do is use the story as a way to think about sort of bigger pressing issues. And it, it is the hook that draws them into a discussion of, you know, what makes a prince legitimate? What are the expectations of our rulers? How do we balance the people's needs versus, you know, the good of the state? How do you sort of struggle with these, again, political issues that I think the students are surprised that there's such nuance thought about it 500 years ago or 700 years ago, but it gives them a way of thinking about contemporary issues, you adopt some historical distance, you get the analytical language or tools, and then you bring it back to today. So I would hope Wolf of Wall Street's the same way, right? Like it is an intensely interesting story about capitalism and its lures and its dangers. So if that means audiences are willing to think about those issues and interrogate their own attraction to these characters, I mean, that is valuable even if there are, again, you know, corners of, there are too many gifts or memes out there celebrating it, <laughs> totally offset that thoughtful conversation. Right, right, right. Well, I, you know, I just, I just want to say in praise of Machiavelli, even though I think mm-hmm. he's probably foolish. Say, you don't full, sound like you like him that much. Yeah, I think he's kind of full of shit a lot of times. But I, I will say he's a great writer. It's a very clear a clearly written text you can download a pdf it does not take a lot of effort to download a pdf for free and it's not flowery language it's very direct very straightforward and it feels like it might have been written 40 years ago at times Um, yes so anyway it's a fascinating read and if you're at all interested in and knowing a little bit more than sort of the reductionist view of Machiavelli, really, really interesting stuff. And, you know, and then I would say you should go out because, again, you can find it online for free. Um, his treatise on reforming the, the state of Florence. And that is his most thoughtful and radical Republican. And I don't mean that, you know, Democrat, Republican, but in praise of the republic as a form of government. And if you put that next to the prince, you will realize that he is, I think that text reflects his actual beliefs more than the prince. Well, okay, and that'll it, be my next read for sure. It's a, It's just, you will suddenly, you'll find yourself wondering, 
you know, how a person can hold these two things in tension in themselves. <laughs> and I think it's just an acceptance of this is the world we tried to build and Fortuna intervened and we failed. And now the prince is the world I have to live in. And so we, we, need, we need one of these memes where it's like, this is me when I'm applying for a job. This is <laughs> this is me after I didn't get the job or after I got the job or something like that. That's right. That's exactly it. Um, no, but it's he's just he's a way more multifaceted thinker than we sometimes give yeah. him credit credit for. So, and again, it's like thirty pages. It's not long. So it's good. It's good, clean fun. Thank you so much, Phil. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. I enjoy these conversations. This will probably come out in a month or so. I'll I'll make sure I send a link when sure. when it does. Whenever I I subscribe to the feed. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Felt self-serving to give it five stars, if I'm being honest. Well, I, I also appreciate that. Okay. All right. Uh, I, I appreciate it, and I hope you have a good evening. We'll talk soon. Take care. Okay.